Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. Time only goes in one direction. We can't go back. They say that nostalgia is the memory of a past that never was. And living with regrets is a heavy thing. But we all have them on some level. We regret things that we should have done and we didn't. And we regret things that we should not have done and we did. And I've been wondering recently about the relationship between those two. Which sit more heavily in our kishkas? The undone things or that we should not have done things. On some level, the things that we did and we ought not have make a bigger mark because they happened. They took place. The things that we didn't do, that we should have, are sins of omission on some level. No one may even have known that we were considering doing them. They're quieter aches in our soul. But that doesn't mean that they don't live in a very deep way. One of the things that I didn't do that I wish I had done is write a letter to Dr. Weisswasser at the end of 1990 or the beginning of 1991. During that year, I was in Israel for my gap year after high school on USY's Latif program. And obviously, it was an era before the internet, before texting, to write a letter meant to write, start again, Stuart? <laughs> For the ex-president, sure. Shabbat shalom, everyone. <laughs> writing a letter meant getting one of the airmail letters and opening it up and writing it and folding it in a way that it could be sent. I should have written a letter to Dr. Weisswasser at the end of, December, end of December 1990, beginning of January 1991. Who was Dr. Weisswasser? He was my pediatrician. And he was the kind of pediatrician that they make movies about. Gentle interested in your full self, kind, somehow a brilliant medical scholar with tremendous bedside manner. And he was a very significant figure in my childhood. A, because we still a doctor a lot. He was also a member of my shul growing up. I was a very heavy kid as an elementary school student. I was bullied mercilessly for it as happens. And with Dr. Weisswasser, we worked on a method to help me lose significant weight. At a time, you know, every, the approach every generation for how to slim down if you're trying to do so changes. At the time, his method was pure calorie counting. Calorie counting is somehow poo-pooed in the 21st century, but calorie counting was what he suggested and put me on a very strict regimen. And I remember the numbers between sixth and seventh grade, I went from weighing 110 pounds to 85 pounds. I lost almost 25% of my body weight. And more or less since then have maintained my basic body shape. That would not have happened without Dr. Weisswasser's care, attention, and understanding that what was happening in my physical body was really significant to my emotional and psychological self. I should have written him a letter. I wanted to tell him how much he meant to me as I was beginning my adulthood. I wanted to tell him that I felt good about myself because of what he had helped me do years before. I didn't write him a letter, 
in December of 1990 or January of 1991. But it's a quiet admission, because nobody knew I was even thinking about it. No one knew that it was in my head. No one knew that every day when I got back to my dorm in Jerusalem, I was considering, is this the day I do it? I didn't do it, and no one knew that I did it, that I didn't do it. In general, Judaism has a harsher critique of things that we were not supposed to do and we did compared to the things that we were, should have done and we did not. The stakes are higher for thou shalt nots than the thou shalts. Two halachic examples amongst many. There's a system of punishments in the Torah based on what sin you commit, either by commission or omission, the Torah lists out ways that an ancient Jew, and maybe even a modern Jew in ways we're not aware of, are punished. Believe it or not, if you haven't studied the religious tradition deeply, this may come as a surprise, the second to worst punishment in the Torah system was death. That's the second worst, right? Death by hands of the Beit Din. That if you committed a certain action, including violating the Shabbat publicly, you are liable to the Beit Din uh, accusing you and finding you guilty of desecrating the Shabbat, and that could cost you your life. Parentheses. Did it ever happen? I don't know. It's not the point of this particular conversation. But the theory was very significant. That committing that kind of a religious crime was so significant, you might give up your life. But considered worse than that, worse than mitah from the Beidin, was the sin, of, was the sin whose punishments brought you karet. Karet means cut off. We don't know exactly what the Torah means when it says that you're, you will be cut off. It says many times, the person will be cut off from the people of Israel. Some people believed that it meant that God would strike you down earlier in your life than would have happened had you lived a full life, and that was considered a more severe punishment than being executed by the court. And some people believed that it meant that you would be cut off, you and your soul, from the destiny of the Jewish people, including the afterlife. And that was considered a heavier loss. It's one thing to die early, we're all going to die. It's another thing to not spend eternity with your soul connected to the Jewish people. Karet was considered worse than mitah. Nearly every mitzvah whose violation brought you the worst punishment, karet, was a thou shalt not. Don't you dare do this. If you do it, you might be cut off from the Jewish people. There are only two thou shalts. That if you don't do it, if you were supposed to do it and you didn't do it, you get that punishment. It's an interesting duo, by the way. That's for a different sermon, but I'll mention them. The only two positive commandments of the 248 in the entire Torah for the punishment for not doing them as karet is brit milah. Not sure if the, it's unclear if the punishment goes to the father or to the child. And korban pesach. You didn't circumcise your son and you didn't participate in the pesach offering. The absence of doing that would bring you karet. But those are the exceptions that prove the rule. For the most part, thou shalt not are treated more seriously. Second halachic example. There's a whole body of halachic literature about what happens when you are a diaspora Jew spending time in Israel over the holidays. Right? Imagine you're on vacation with your family and it's Sukkot. And in the United States, even if this is a strange law that we perpetuate, you'd have two days of Yantif at the beginning of Sukkot and two days of Yantif at the end of Sukkot with Shemini Yatzeret. What do you do? You're visiting Jerusalem. Do you have to refrain from uh, violating the laws of Yantif on the second day of Sukkot when all of religious Israel is out buying and selling and driving, whatever? 
Most halachic authorities say that unless you have a reason, a rationale for why you should only observe one day, and there are many such rationales, either you own property in Israel, or you have an imminent um, hope to make aliyah, or if you're going to be in Israel for the full cycle of the holidays, Pesach, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. If you lacking that, most authorities say, you have to refrain from the thou shalt nots. We don't make you the thou shalts. Right? Don't write. Don't use money. Don't use electricity if that's your practice. Don't drive. You've got to consider it a yantif day for the things you're not supposed to do. We're not going to make you say Kiddush on the second day of Sukkot when no one else is doing it. We're not going to make you find somehow a diaspora American minion and pray the positive commandments of Sukkot. We give you a break from the thou shalts. There is no break from the thou shalt nots. It's a pattern that suggests that in our tradition, the stakes are higher when you do something you ought not have done than when you simply didn't do the thing that you probably should have done. But it's not the case everywhere in our tradition. And that's what brings us to Parshat Pinchas. There is a phrase towards the beginning of the Parsha that I want to investigate a little bit and interrogate with you. Of course, Parshat Pinchas is named after the man Pinchas who did the thing that made him prominent and made him notorious at the end of last week's Parsha. It's called Parsha Pinchas because his name appears in the first verse. And what he did was stop a plague of licentiousness and unruliness and immoral behavior amongst the Israelites as they were whoring with the Midianites and losing their moral character. And Pinchas comes in and does an act of pretty violent zealotry and eventually the plague stops. And the Torah says, Vayahi achareha And it was when the plague ended. Two things on that verse. First of all, the French commentator Chizkuni notices something interesting. You might note, remember that when you look at a Torah scroll, there are places in the Torah scroll where there are breaks. There are full breaks where it's as if the, the keyboard pressed return at the end of the line, and then the next line begins uh, at the beginning on the, on the right side. And sometimes it's just a tab, right, where it's, a, it's a, called a closed break, a petucha and a stuma. After the words, vayahi achareha magifa, and it was after the plague, there is a parsha break. If you look in the, in the chumash, you see a pay there saying it's a parsha break, and there's space in the text. What's weird about it is it's in the middle of a sentence. It's the only place in the Torah where the editor, as it were, pressed tab or return in the middle of a verse. Chizkuni says it's to tell us that even though the verse continues, and it was after the plague that such and such happened, that the phrase, and it was after the plague, is a paragraph in and of itself. There's something significant we're supposed to linger on the fact that the plague was over. That's French commentary in the Middle Ages. Rabbi Yosef of Trani, who was a 16th and 17th century Greek scholar, adds on to it. He says, and this is going to sound like a, um, a very thin link, but it's very, very significant in the Midrashic tradition. The Midrashic tradition was sensitive to verses that began with the word vayahi, whose meaning is rather pedestrian, just means and it was. They understood that many of the verses that began vayahi were portentous, portending some kind of doom or some kind of negativity that was around. It may actually be related to what has become, believe it or not, the word oi, right? Oi or ve, or of oi, oi vavoi, that, that's a very ancient way of expressing woe, right? Oi is a, very, uh, is a very ancient way of expressing woe, and vayahi kind of looks like it can be articulated as an oi. And Rabbi Yosef Chani says, if this is a a portentous verse, what is portentous? It's telling us that the plague ended. This is good news. 
Terrible things were happening in the camp, and all of a sudden it's over. Why should there be any woe attached to this verse? He says the woe is that Pinchas came too late. Pinchas came and did what he did and interrupted the plague after too much damage had been done. Too much of Israel's moral fiber was gone. Too many people were killed by God's wrath and what they were doing. So he came. But how about all of the hours and the days and the weeks that he didn't? The vayahi is to remind us of the harm and the cost of his hesitation. Sometimes when you're hesitating to do something you ought not do, no one knows. Sometimes when you hesitate to do the right thing, people's lives are at risk. Later on in that chapter, we have another very short verse. We're looking at the census of the tribes, and we get to the tribe uh, in which the family of Korah lives. We have a little three-verse um, reminder of the rebellion of Korah from a few parashot ago. And we have in this little reminder the phrase, Uvenei Korach Mometu, the children of Korach did not die. It's an interesting four-word reminder. First of all, we don't remember from Parshat Korach they did not die. And why are we being reminded of it here, that they did not die? Rashi in that verse is the following thing. The children of Korach, not Korach himself. Korach is gone. The children of Korach, at some point, Halfway through the rebellion, they realized that their father and his cronies were not in the side of good. And they did shuva. They repented. They decided that they were going to place their fate with a lot of the good Israelites, not with the ones who are pushing against God's authority. And as a result of them, that their lives were spared. They didn't die. If it was just that, it would be a wonderful celebration of the power of doing shuva for changing your mind eventually to go in the right direction. But where Rashi takes his comment from is a fascinating place in the Talmud in Masechet Sanhedrin. In Masechet Sanhedrin on page 100b, we have a little story. Basically it says that the children of Korah didn't die, but they didn't continue to live their lives in the desert of getting themselves on the way to the land of Israel with joy and with sustenance. Rather, God snatched them from the world, didn't kill them, but placed them at the highest level of Gehinom, the highest level of what we call in English hell, right? They were alive. They weren't amongst the departed souls, but they weren't living on earth. They're there in perpetuity, in kind of a purgatory, because perhaps they had not changed their mind quick enough. And there's a fascinating story on that page of Talmud. Rab, Rabbi Rabbi Barbarchana tells the following story. He was once walking down the street when an Arab merchant came over to him and beckoned him. And he said, you want to see something amazing? And Rabbi Barbarchana said, sure. He said, I'm going to show you the place where the sons of Korah are stuck in perpetuity forever. And the Arab brought him over to a part of the neighborhood where there were two fissures in the earth and smoke was rising from the two fissures. And the Arab took a staff and put some wet linen on the end of it, the kind of thing that doesn't easily turn on fire, and he held the staff over the open fissures in the earth, and the wet linen alit, 
suggesting that the power of the flame underneath was very powerful. And they could hear voices. And the voices they heard in the story was, Moshe v'torato emet v'hein badaim. Moses and his Torah are true. And all the people who followed that rebellion are false, are false prophets. And the Arabs said, every 30 days, wherever the sons of Korah have escaped to, trying to leave their purgatory, God brings them back to this very spot where they have to live in perpetuity. That is faint praise. That is damning praise for people who did tshuva. It's a way of saying to Korah's sons, you did the right thing, you did a little too little, and you did it a little bit too late. The moral of the story is, you want to do the right thing, you want to do the thing that you're supposed to do, do it now. Dr. Weisswasser was diagnosed with cancer a few months before I went to Israel for the year. I actually remember uh, it started in his jaw, and the last time I saw him before I went away, he'd had a surgery, so part of his jaw was missing. And it was amazing. You get used to what someone looks like, and the person's essence is their personality, their character. But it's jarring to see someone that you're expecting to look a certain way, and all of a sudden missing a portion of their facial structure. And it was jarring for someone for me who saw Dr. Weisswasser my entire life as someone who was solid and stable and there to be there for me and protect me. And I heard from my parents during that first few months of Israel that his situation was going downhill. And I knew I needed to write him. I knew there was a good chance that I probably would never see him again. And the updates weren't daily. I mean, I think I called home from Israel that year three times. It was very expensive and hard to do. So you send air letters back and forth. I cannot to this day explain why I didn't bring myself to do it. I was busy. I was distracted. Maybe he'll get better. Is it that significant that I write to him? I'm sure other people are taking care of him. I'm one of his hundreds of patients. I'm an 18-year-old kid. What does he need to hear from me? I delayed, and I delayed, and I delayed. I remember the day when I was sitting in my room in the kibbutz that I was living in for the second half of the year in that program, where I said, today is the day I'm finally going to sit down and write him a letter. And I wrote him a long, beautiful air letter, you know, writing with small handwriting so you could fit in as many words as possible, if you remember those blue air letters, thanking him for being my doctor, telling him how significant he had been in my life and how I couldn't imagine living the life I was living without his support. And it arrived during his shiva. I'm told by my parents that when it arrived and his wife opened it, that her reading it brought her great consolation and comfort. And I've never forgiven myself for the delay. Kind of like Korach's sons. I did tshuva. I did the right thing eventually, but I did a little bit too little and a little bit too late. And I mourn him to this day, and I mourn the smiles I could have put on his face had he read them during a tremendously difficult and the last stage of his life. And I mourn the goodness I failed to create simply from this delayed sin of omission. Yogi Berra said famously, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. When you come to an opportunity in your life to do something good and something right and something beautiful, do it now. 
You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.